0: Welcome to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. A lot of us who get into the self directed education world start with high hopes of integrating these ideas into the public school system. And then when we realize how difficult it is, we just jump ship and say, all right, I'm going to do something that's totally outside the mainstream, a private alternative, way simpler, way easy. That's what I did. I just work with teenagers who don't go to school and take them on international trips or work with them in summer camps. And there are some people who don't just jump ship. They stay in the public school system because they believe in it. And they find unique ways to shift the traditional system towards the principles of self-directed learning. And that is what Kate Friedman has done and is doing. I met Kate a few years ago, and she recently hosted me for one of the talks I was giving in my fall 2018, speaking tour in her small apartment in Brooklyn. It was a wonderful experience. It was called Turn and Talk, and she hosts these fairly regularly. So if you're in the Brooklyn area, look up Kate's website, and you can find out more. And now without further ado, here's Kate. My guest today is Kate Friedman, an educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Kate. Hi, Blake. We are talking about self-directed learning in public education, and you have a long and winding road. Uh, Where did you get started thinking about self-directed learning and how it might uh, become part of the public education world?
1: You know, when I was a really little kid, I was... um... Unknowingly, very into self-directed learning. I would like create new toys and invent foods and write letters to companies. Um, and my parents were very encouraging of it. And it wasn't really until I was an adult and learned what self-directed learning is that I knew that that was something that I'd always kind of been doing. Um,
0: and you use this phrase a lot: self-directed learning. Is this your preferred phrase?
1: Uh, yeah, I think it is. Um, I often don't use it. I often just say inclusive learning um, and the idea of like meeting all different kinds of learners needs, which in many cases is having kids have more options and more freedom and uh, less adult direction. And I think that's how I, I I think of self-directed education as like a spectrum of that. Um so going from a little bit of freedom and a little bit of options and still having like an adult in the room all the way to, you know, what we think of as like unschooling.
0: Hmm. And did you want to be a teacher when you were young? What was your your career path?
1: No, I wanted to open a hairdressing salon. Um, really? That was like a head to toe. You walked in and everything was taken care of. <laughs> um i imagined it as like having specialists in all different areas and um you wouldn't how have to old were to, you
0: at, at this point what, when did uh, this dream germinate maybe
1: six or seven.
0: Oh, okay we're going very early very here. far
1: back but i held on to that and i kind of figured i would do that in colorado so that i could be a ski instructor in the winter <laughs> and have this like amazing really fun salon with all my that friends where we make like people a great feel life. good
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. wow Ski instructing, doing head-to-toe salon work with your friends in Colorado. I, I can get behind that.
1: Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't until – so in high school, I ended up on an educational TV show that was recorded live uh, after school every day. And uh, kids could call in for homework advice and homework help. And I loved it. Um, and it made me think I wanted to go into television. Um, and I kind of – missed you know in my 18 year old brain that the part that I loved about it was education Mm. Um, and so it was a winding road in television and radio before I got to oh it's the education part that's really fueling me Um, and so I was working in summer camps and after school programs and um, kind of anywhere that I was I was uh, noticing patterns over time of like really pushing adults to have less control and to give kids freedom uh, to make choices and and kind of decide what the plan was going to be, mm. activities they wanted to
0: pursue. Where do you think that came from, this desire to to push adults to give kids more autonomy?
1: You know, so my my brother really struggled when we were kids and needed a lot of my parents' support. And I think I kind of realized early on that, like, people need different things and that you get the thing that you need. And so, like, I had a lot of free time and space to do what I needed, and my parents trusted me, and they knew that I would come to them if I needed something. And, um, and they also shared that, like, you know, my brother needed more support, and that's probably where they would be, but it didn't mean anything less about, you know, their love or support in me. Uh, and I, I saw that very much growing up. Uh, I saw like the divide between cliques in elementary school, high school with um, kids who needed more support uh, being treated differently. And it really bugged me. And I, I, you know, I was that kid who like stood up when a kid got made fun of, and I was the kid that got made fun of. And uh, it sort of just like became a mission to like not have kids get made fun of and to have kids feel like in any way that they were learning or or being social, they felt comfortable and accepted.
0: Mm -hmm. So what was your exit out of the world of media?
1: Um, I came back to New York because my grandfather, who I was very close to, um, was passing away. And so I sort of just like jumped ship from my, my life in Boston and radio and came to New York where I didn't have any radio contacts, but I had lots of summer camp and after school contacts from my childhood in New York. And that sort of just like took over.
0: Hmm. So what was the first time you got paid to be an educational consultant?
1: Oh, that's a great question. What was my first gig?
0: Your first gig?
1: Um, I, you know what? I think that it was um, teaching graduate students at Bank Street. Um, I realized that all of my teaching experience and the teachers that I knew were not preparing us at all to give kids choice and that like a way that I could remedy the situation was to get myself in a room full of fledgling teachers and whatever the topic was that I was teaching sort of also infiltrate with um, how to just like not be, have to not not feel like you have to be in control Um, and how Mm. to rethink what that looks like. You know, this idea of like classroom management, um, of being like one adult in a room with 25 kids. And it's not really like the order that makes it, Great. It's the chaos.
0: Have you worked in a public school?
1: Yeah, I've worked in several public schools.
0: As a teacher?
1: As a teacher. I was a kindergarten special ed teacher um, in general ed, special ed, and ICT, um, like a co-teaching model. Okay. uh, All over the city, in Manhattan and Brooklyn.
0: And only at the kindergarten level?
1: Always kindergarten. I feel like that four or five-year-old age is uh, magic. <laughs> you know, people who are who have been teachers for a long time have like an age that just speaks to them, mm-hmm. and that four and five-year-old age is like, uh, that's the language I speak.
0: <laughs> what, what were your experiences like teaching kindergarten in New York?
1: Um, it was an interesting range of experiences. The the largest influencer in like my ability or experience teaching was the leadership and structure of the school. Um, and it was actually in a public school in Brooklyn where I realized that if the principal really trusts the teachers and has the ability to give them some freedom to do what they want, like more of the ideas of self-directed learning, um, can be like experimented with and played with and, um, you know, it helps also if like all the kids are are doing well on the state exams and there's like other things that your administration isn't thinking about or worrying about. Um, but that was the first time that I was like, oh, this could work in a public school. Um, but only it, it's not really up to the teachers or even the parents, like the administration has to make room for
0: it. Hmm. I did an interview with a guy named Gabe Cooper who started something called the UnSchool out in Sacramento, California. And it sounds like a key part of his experience getting funding to do this really cool, very self-directed program, was just a friendly administrator. And and without that, it seems much more difficult. Um, I imagine there's a lot of listeners who are hearing us use the phrase self-directed learning and thinking, yeah, but how can that actually work in a public school? You're talking about support. You're talking about giving kids choice. But aren't these all just you know false concepts when fundamentally you are in a coercive system, which most public schools have to be by their very nature? Yes. (laughs) All of that. Chew on that one, Kate. Yeah. (laughs) Go for it.
1: So I think when I first started thinking about self-directed learning, particularly through the unschooling movement, I was like very, very optimistic and gung-ho about how can we turn our public schools into like unschool centers. Um, And even with, you know, helpful administrators it feels to me more like what's realistic is a lot of schools are using curriculums that are working towards a workshop model so it's not like the idea that kids are sitting in rows and a teacher is lecturing and everyone's doing the same project or the same worksheet Um, it's looking more like small groups and if a group of students is super into astronomy they read the astronomy books with the teacher or they do it alone and then you know do a little project about it
0: and are you saying that this is what exists right now in many public schools? Yes. Yeah, this workshop model? Workshop
1: model. And a lot of the newer curriculums are being built around this idea that you can't teach a, a room full of 25 kids the same thing all at once. Kids learn differently. Kids have different interests. Kids learn at different paces. Um, some kids need more visual input. Some kids need to like really parse it out in discussion. And so knowing that that's sort of already in place sets you up for more of a self-directed um, model uh you know you can have groups of students who who say who come to you and say like you know we know that we do this small group work this is something we really want to work on um and I think like the flip for that to like really happen is for teachers to be able to say like you know um we have this like 30 minute block where something isn't planned you guys can like you know come together and and talk to each other and figure out something that you really want to work on and study and and you know, make a, make a proposal. Um, and I feel like that's the, could be like a first step in, you know, just creating space for that. And teachers having like a little like toe in the water to see that, like, this isn't total chaos and it's really great when kids have control and when they have agency and autonomy, like they're actually more invested in the material. Um, and it might push that in, in other areas.
0: Kate, I feel like you are painting a fairly rosy picture of life in public schools, and you have way more experience in them, way more recent experience in them. But from what I've heard from teachers and from parents and from young people is that there isn't this amount of flexibility in most public school classrooms. And maybe there is some embracing of learning styles and this workshop model that you're talking about, but there is the common core. There is overcrowded classrooms. Uh, So is your experience based on some like fairly unique special schools in New York? Or are you saying that this is actually the the new reality is that self-directed learning and more individualization has already crept into the standard public school classroom?
1: I would venture to say that in most classrooms, there's already a little bit of this, whether, whether people are calling it that or not. I think anytime that you're giving kids some choice and they're working in a small group or on their own, that's like a step in that direction. Um, And Mm. yes, I am very (laughs) idealistic in this sense. I have dreams of getting, gathering like all of the New York City public school teachers into like my apartment, which, you know, could never happen because my apartment's not big enough. (laughs) Um, And like, you know, energizing them with uh, some some tips and tricks on how to like do more of this.
0: Let's go back to your more Uh, radically idealistic days when you wanted to bring unschooling, the principles of unschooling fully into the public education system. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did you attempt to do that in large ways or or small? And what were the results?
1: Mm. I mean, a lot of it was like dreaming and talking and, hypothesizing and wondering and asking other people like, could this really happen?
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe, maybe the different question I should be asking is how did the dream deflate or die? (laughs) where did cynicism creep in?
1: Um, So part of the idealism that I had was that the spaces would be used differently. And instead of like grouping kids by age and having these like separate rooms that you're like siloed inside of for the day, Um, the spaces would be thought of more as like maker spaces and art spaces and ideation spaces and that kids would sort of like have a freedom to roam through and explore different areas.
0: Mm. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: And I think, not that that's like the only way to think about this, but that was what like really got me jazzed and the idea that um that's not going to happen. Like legally, teachers need to be responsible for a set of kids. If you don't know where they are and they're roaming the building, like like there's just like inherent legality issues with the way the the current public education system is is set up that doesn't allow for that in like a five thousand person uh, school. You know, mm-hmm. um, in a smaller school, yes, but typically the public schools in New York are are pretty giant.
0: So there are places that exist. I know you you know about them that are more like, you know, go to the makerspace or go to the art room or, you know, get a one-on-one tutorial. They're more drop-in style spaces. Uh, Some of them are private. There are a few public ones out there, but they're all pretty radical. And so what I want to ask is what has inspired you to continue working in the public sphere instead of going directly to these other places where you can realize this vision very directly.
1: Because these other places are already doing it. And I would like more people to be doing it. Um, And I think it's a very slow process to try to change like a public education system. Um, But I've sort of set up a a program in my consultancy that I spend a year in an educational program and help them see this kind of way, and then I leave, Um, and I offer other supports afterwards, but it's more like giving people the tools and then also giving them the freedom to take ownership of it, Um, and I have found found some success with that of organizations feeling like unsure about this but knowing that they want to try it or not knowing that they want to try it but having parents request it um, and calling me in to say like, look, we know we're not doing this. Um, help us figure out the best way that we can do this. This is the system we're working in. This is what can be changed. This is what can't be changed. Um, you know, propose some ideas. And I like, I feel excited about the people who are unsure and just need a little bit of like experimenting and guidance.
0: Hmm. I think I'm just in awe of you, Kate, because you kind of saw the other side and then you you came back and said, I'm still going to work in the public system. And I feel like I surround myself with so many people who saw the other side and then uh, totally jump ship or became cynical about working in the public system and and kind of gave up on it. Uh, so I just want to put that out there. Thank you for existing. And uh, second of all, can you walk me through what you actually do with the school. You say you go in and work with them for a year and then you kind of leave them on their own with a little bit of light support. Like just what does it actually look like what you do?
1: So often, um, this is like the basics of it. I'm often hired under like a line item a budget for special education. And once I'm there and they say, okay, we're going to give you this like special education title. I say something like, um, it's great that you have money put aside for this, but I believe that everyone learns differently. And I would prefer to be called something like a learning specialist. And this is like the scope of work that we're saying I'm going to work on. And it looks like giving kids direct support and coaching teachers in different learning styles. Um, but just so you know, like I- I'm, I'm more interested in helping you shift your culture to be more inclusive. Um, and usually whoever I'm speaking to says, oh, yeah, that sounds really great. We have no idea what that looks like, but go for it. Um, and so it starts out with just, you know, talking to parents about how their students learn, putting surveys out to students about how they believe they learn best, putting surveys out to teachers and asking them, you know, what do you think are the things you're doing well in the classroom? What are the things you struggle with? Uh, and then it's just like having meetings and observing and becoming part of the fabric and, and slowly offering little, little tidbits, you know, in one of the schools that I'm in now, the, the teachers are we're very into I'm going to teach one lesson and everyone's going to do the same exact thing. Um, And I got the teacher who was the most resistant to try just for one week having stations. So like instead of one thing, it's like here we've all done this little bit, a bit of pre-work. We have a little background knowledge. The room is set up with five different spaces. You pick the ones that interest you and do them. You can do all of them if you want. You can do one the whole time. And let's see what happens. Uh, and the teachers were very concerned that it was going to take many, many adults to manage this. And I was sort of explaining that it's actually the opposite is true. Um, it's much harder to get 25 kids to do the same thing than it is to get 25 kids to all have a choice and do the thing that feels good mm-hmm. for them. And and you have the freedom to walk around and you know ask questions uh, mm-hmm. and see what's happening. And the teacher who was the most resistant tried it out and I mean, within minutes of this, you know, hour long session being over, she sent an email to the team, her other other teachers on her grade level and me to say, this was the most amazing thing ever. The kids were so engaged. We're going to do it again next week. Um, Kate, do you have more station ideas? (laughs) Uh, And I was like, yeah, well, now it's your turn to think of some stations, you know, like the we know the the we always know what the big ideas we want kids to walk away from with is. Um, And I would like to hope that we're moving more towards um, questions about what it means to have like civic engagement and be part of a community and less about like, do you know this math fact Um, and stations really like project based learning stations, choices, uh, self-directed learning, all sort of, push kids to be the ones asking the questions um, and thinking of how they're a part of the community and less, you know, do I know this fact?
0: Hmm. So you see this whole spectrum from traditional uh, conventional education all the way over to fully self-directed unschooling. And you have chosen to work with teachers who are pretty far on the traditional side of things and for whom something like rotating stations and giving choice, you know, giving choice to students about what they want to study within this this very tight framework, um, or embracing learning styles, these pretty simple concepts of just differentiation of instruction, you are moving teachers a little bit in that direction. It it almost feels a bit like you're introducing the principles of Montessori to them, uh, the basic, like, we don't all learn the same way. And you're not trying to shift them way over in the direction of like, uh, like a free school, like, hey, don't, don't actually require kids to do anything because that's that's just not going to happen. Am I getting this correctly, your process?
1: So I like to think of it as a quiet disruption where it's not realistic or feasible, like you said. Like Teachers are not going to just flip and do a 180 and all of a sudden let kids make all of the choices. Um, and and create the structure and direction. And so I like to think of it as I I would like to get them like forty five degrees away from what they think the center is, and and just shift even what they think the center is. Mm. And and part of the approach that I think works for me is that I was a teacher, and so I'm not like an administrator who's coming in and saying like I'm evaluating you, and you're going to get like formal written feedback. Um, and I, I, I do it the way that I would talk to kids is how I talk to teachers. You know, I, I offer a suggestion and say, look, try it out. If it works, great. If it doesn't, let's talk about it. Like nothing is permanent or, or forever. This idea that like there's one way to do something, um, which often is I, I think what teachers feel like they have to do isn't really what works. Um and by coming in through the special education lens, it's a lot of like just getting teachers to be more comfortable with talking about difference um, and celebrating that kids do di- things differently, which once that conversation is opened and some kids have fidgets and some kids are sitting on a bouncy chair and some kids are taking little movement breaks in the hall with a sand timer and then coming back when they're ready, that opens the door tremendously for, okay, if we're letting kids learn differently, we have to we have to teach differently.
0: Where else are teachers getting similar messages today? Public school teachers. Who else is doing what you do? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, just I think Kate Friedman consulting incorporated Check her out online.
1: <laughs> you know, I think to a large extent, the, the professional development world that's focusing on maker spaces and project-based learning is doing this and just calling it something else. Um, you know, they put the research behind it and it's packaged pretty and it comes with handbooks and curriculum guides and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's a way to think more about like small groups and giving kids choice and not being so adult controlled and having, having adult teachers be more people who ask thoughtful questions and less people who guide what's happening hmm. um, or, or, you know, direct what's happening.
0: You don't just work in public schools, Kate. You have spent some time working at the Brooklyn Free School, which is a full-on democratic free school, right? Yes. Yeah. What, what did you do for them there? So I was their learning
1: specialist. It was kind of the same thing. I came in with an idea for special education um, that they were hiring for and wanted to do more. And um, I think for... In that setting, because the teachers already sort of understood the tenets of self-directed learning and um, and already had lots of processes in place for kids, you know, oh, I want to go to the art room and make this thing, and then try it out at the playground, and that was already like totally uh, wonderfully accepted uh, and, and celebrated. It was more about that. That's a great model, but it also doesn't work for everyone. Um, and sometimes I find that in the world of self-directed learning, there's this idea that, like, that's what's best for everyone. Mm. And some kids thrive that way, certainly. Some kids thrive with a lot of that. Some kids thrive with a little bit of that. Some kids need some direct instruction. Um, and it got to a place where they were realizing that kids who'd been in the school for many years, while they could do all of the great self-directed stuff, like, weren't reading or weren't writing, um, or couldn't recognize, you know, numbers, you know, one through nine, and so I was sort of there to bridge what that looks like, and like, when do you say, or when does a like, child or their parent say, um, "Hey, we, we're, <laughs> we're, my kid is missing some key skills here," and if we lived in the forest in Sweden, they wouldn't need to be able to read, but we live in New York city and they need to like be able to take the bus and um, read a map. And if they're not reading at like third, fourth, fifth grade, um, how do we reconcile
0: that? This is fascinating. And I want to dig into it because you are talking about the orthodoxy of self-directed education. And we have this kind of folk psychology that we promote that says a kid will learn what they need to learn to be successful in the world when they realize that they need it. And and I push this folk psychology also because um, it has a very strong intuitive appeal. And when some parent comes up and says, well, my kid goes to this free school or my kid is unschooled and they're very engaged in what they're doing, which may be computer games, you know, for a lot of kids it is because the games are so good. Um, but then yeah they're at the third grade level and they can't read or you know and and then people like me respond and say well when they really need to read they will you know jump and the net will appear um and so it's an easy thing to say and probably a very difficult and anxiety provoking situation to be in if you're the parent it says no but really i think my kid needs to be reading at this point my kid needs to be writing at this point um and so can you tell me a little bit more about this tension between like trusting in the unschooling process the free school process and uh, making sure your kid can read and write as as basic you know human skills yeah
1: um i I think it's it's uh it's it's very tricky there's separate from the skills that like in school it's decided are like benchmarks for different ages in society, there are skills that you need to be part of the communities that you live in. And in schools like that are wholehearted, hundred percent self-directed learning, there's, there's room for kids to come to things when they're ready. But there's also this tension of if kids aren't coming to something that we know they're going to need in society, Um, and I kind of hate saying that because, you know, who are we to say what people need? And that's a very like adult centered idea. Um, that also comes from me having been a kid at some point and knowing that it was really great that I was reading as a young person and I could take the subway by myself and, um, Mm -hmm. and that being able to read lots of books as a kid opened me up to things that I then pursued on my own and led to more of my, you know, self-directed learning later. Uh, and so I think there's in private schools and in, um, you know, more of the, like what you're saying, orthodox self-directed learning centers, um, there isn't as much like awareness of what's behind, um, inside of kids that makes them learn differently. And there's like two different things. There's the, like, I'm being forced to do something versus I have, you know, the freedom to dive into what I I'm, I'm interested in. And there's the other side of how does my brain work and what are the things that I, you know, come easy to me. And what are the things that are really challenging for me? And you know, I've seen a lot of kids with learning disabilities, um, you know, things like dyslexia where they're not going to, it, it's unlikely that they're going to just sort of start reading one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, like, proven, researched ways that you teach kids differently um, when you know that their brain is working differently. And so it's not just, like, repetition and showing them sight words. There's looking at the structure of the word and the shape of the word and, and having other associations. Um,
0: so when you hear someone say most learning disabilities are caused by school, how do you react to that? I've never heard that. Um, I've heard that. I,
1: no, I don't think that there's any um, way of learning for a kid that or a human that is caused by school. I mean, some things get more exacerbated in different environments and um, certainly if like there's something that you cannot absolutely have no skill set for that you're being forced to do, it's gonna make that experience much more difficult. Um, but this is these are like ways that people's brain work.
0: What learning disabilities do you think? Are most exacerbated by school. You're saying dyslexia is, is not one of them necessarily. Um, no, so maybe I think another it. absolutely is exacerbated. It, it is okay. Okay, schools are very Go
1: ahead. rich text print environments that are can be incredibly overwhelming and overstimulating for kids who it can't um, decode.
0: And what else? ADHD.
1: Um, you know. It's different. Th- different abilities show up differently in different kids. And for some kids, having a lot of structure and predictability is really beneficial. And for some kids, um, that can feel really oppressive. And, you know, from what I've seen, families who have the ability to to send their kids to a school that has more freedom when they know that the the structure and limitation of public school isn't working... And they have that choice. That's really great. Um, I think for a lot of kids, the the structure and like oppressive nature of, of public education, there, there is nothing they can escape to. Um, they don't have the financial means or they don't have the like just knowledge of, of what's out there or their neighborhood doesn't have the resources. Um, and so it's, I think it's more of uh, things can just feel worse for you. And you can be in a very stagnant place. I certainly think that there's trauma involved in it um, over time. If you're being asked or forced to do something that just like isn't working for your your brain or your body. Um,
0: What's your vision of a thriving public education system, Kate? I probably should have prepped you on this question. Sorry.
1: No way. So there's, I have it. Uh, I I know this answer. Yeah. there's like a kindergarten center in Japan um, that's mostly outdoors and partially indoors with like walls that slide open and close to create spaces. And it's like a semicircle. And the it looks out onto like fields and trees and grass and um climbing structures that kids have made and there's like stairs on one side of the structure and the other side of the structure is like a climbing rope net and the things like this, like where there's like flexibility and openness and an ability to move through in in and out of spaces where there's still a structure and it's still somewhat contained, but um, it's encouraging you to explore. You know, like when I think about like the, the public schools, they're very, um, heavy buildings, right? They're like thick with bricks and the brick's been painted over five, six hundred times and um, the doors are heavy and they close with a heavy slam and everyone's expected to be in their room the whole time with the door closed and it feels like very confining. Um, and the, I think for me what works for, for many kids, whether, regardless of like how much or how little structure there is or how much or how little adult direction there is, is having flexible spaces.
0: Hmm. And does this continue up through the elementary, middle school, high school years?
1: I, in the school in Japan, I'm not sure. I think it's just a kindergarten. Um, but yeah, if I would imagine, I imagine that an ideal version would be... Um, yeah. Having more flexible spaces. I really dislike kids being separated by age and getting these ideas of like, uh, it becomes a little bit like Lord of the Flies. Like you're so close in age to the people around you that this unhealthy competition can form. Whereas it's much more natural to just be with lots of different kids and and hear a larger variety of like experiences.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and see your past self and your future self represented in this community. Yeah. And realize that if you're not perfect at some skill like all your peers are, then that might change in a few years. And some younger kids are faster at learning something than others. Yeah, I think we're all with you on that one. Kate, something you said earlier struck me, which is that self-directed learning is not for everyone. And I interpreted that as... A place like the Brooklyn Free School, where it's complete autonomy all the time, full self-direction, is not for everyone. And I wanted to dive into that a little bit, because I think a lot of us in this world feel like, well, actually, self-direction is for everyone. And that's how individuals developed, and and that's how a better society is created. Um, And really, it's all this coercion and and excessive structure, which is the problem. And so... how do you react to that?
1: I mean, the, to me, this feels very much like extremes and like the, there's a giant middle space of models that incorporate different parts of both of those things that work for, for different people. And if you're, the hope is that you find the place that works for you. Um, I, I think the, what stands out in that example is, is structure and, and, the thing that we often talk about in public education is the how much structure there is and i think for a lot of families who choose a, a very extreme self-directed learning that has very little structure that's the thing that they're holding on to as like um is like a huge difference. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that there's a, a, I think structure is really great. Um, I don't know that structure is always oppressive. Uh, there's a lot of other factors that make learning environments oppressive, like not having choice or like having someone direct what you're doing completely, um, having to do the same thing as everyone else. And for a lot of kids, having structure can eliminate anxiety. It can help produce a sense of calm and awareness and predictability and knowing that like freeing up your mind instead of being worried about what's going to happen tomorrow, knowing that there's going to be a solid chunk of time where I get to like explore the library. Um, Whereas if you never know that, it can be a little uh, hard.
0: What you just said about not having choice, about kind of being coerced, that means structure, that's equal to structure in a lot of people's minds. And so how do you explain the good version of structure?
1: I mean, I think about it like, uh, the way that I often talk about this is for adults to reflect on themselves and their own structures that they've created. And For a lot of adults that I know, they've created, like, they wake up at the same time every day. That's a structure, you know, because it helps create consistency Mm, and mm -hmm. it helps you have better sleep. They have a specific breakfast in the morning because it helps them feel energized and it only takes five minutes and it gives them time to do other things. Um, People read the newspaper every morning. People... um, Use a Google Calendar to track all of their events, um, so that they, you know, have a sense of order and and can plan their day around stuff like that's all structure. Uh, structure is not a bad thing, and a lot of adults impose similar structures on themselves, um, which leads me to believe that adults and and people in general do do like structure and need structure, and I, I think that in really great, um, school environments, regardless of what the, the teaching philosophy is, when there's a structure that feels like, okay, I'm safe. And I know what, what there's space for in the day. And I know that there's space to ask for things if they're not there. Um, and I know that I'm going to be fed at a certain time and I'm not going to have to wait. And I know that if I need to go to the bathroom, I can just go, or there's a process in place for that. Um, which I don't want to talk about right now because I don't, believe there should be processes in place to have to use the restroom but um, that's all really good structure that then w- lets you not have to think about th- about those things and you can be creative and you can imagine and you have room to do other things.
0: Kate the kind of structure that I just heard you describing is essentially self-imposed structure so habits and routines or practices that work well for your life. And then the second kind I heard you describe was essentially freedom and choice and autonomy. And so I still feel like the structure that you are, you're describing here is not the same kind of structure that exists in most forms of conventional school, which is much more about control and, and creating order and creating standardized outcomes.
1: Uh, Public schools have a lot of structure, um, more than, than is needed. Um, And it's a, a spectrum of structure. There's, small structure like in having like an agenda posted for the day and having the same place that you get supplies in the room so that you're not like searching for things when you have a creative burst of inspiration um and that moves towards like structures for eating and using the bathroom all the way up to structures for, you know, this is what we're going to learn today and you don't have a choice. Uh, and I think that a lot of that initial structure of like having a clean, organized environment and having processes for deciding what you're going to do for the day or processes for being able to say like, "Mm, I have a suggestion that, you know, I would like to see if we can vote as a class and do something differently. Um, Those are really positive, helpful structures that let kids not have to worry about those things so that they can, you know, be free and and learn whether they're having choice or not in what they're learning.
0: Yeah, so it sounds a lot like a free school. It sounds a lot like a self-directed learning center where kids have a lot of voice and input and choice. And it still doesn't quite sound like most kids experience in in school. But I guess this is what you're working to change, right?
1: this is what I'm working to change. And there are also newer curriculums coming out that while they're um, linear and adult-directed and not... um, students are not choosing them they're more of a workshop model and there's more choice inside of them um and i think that that's a great first step when we think about um structure right like slowly shifting structure so that the, there are things that still feel comfortable for both teachers and students and places where you're like um pushing towards the edge
0: what gives you hope and inspiration to continue working in the public system, Kate? Like, where does that that fire come from in you? I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, genuinely I'm a curious. product
1: of the New York City public school system, you know? <laughs> um,
0: I I'm a product of the California public school system, and I am not highly inspired to go back and, and try to shift it. So I, this is what makes me so curious.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, it's a, what is it, a million public school students in New York City. Um, that's far more than if you combined all of the alternative school students together, um, mm. the smaller schools. Mm. And I think a lot of what makes the smaller schools work is that they're smaller, you know, like, like Dunbar's number, uh, what is it, 110, 150? 150. 150. Like yeah. if you're, you know, if you're small enough of a community that everyone knows each other and people feel responsible to each other and you know what that person did over the weekend, there's a different sense of community that's built. And mm-hmm. I don't know that it's realistic in New York City that we're going to have all million school kids be in 150 person um, settings.
0: And that's a lot of schools.
1: That's a lot of schools, you know. And if we know there's going to be, you know, about a thousand kids in each school, I don't know what the average is. I'm guessing. Um, we have to think about like how to change that in a different way. Hmm.
0: Okay, so you're saying this is the reality we have to deal with: uh, is that large public schools exist and will continue to exist, and often the kids who need the most help end up in these schools but I wanted to find out what gives you hope that the public system is going to change in any appreciable way over your lifetime.
1: I mean, I don't know that it actually will, but in order for me to feel like I am uh, doing something that I believe in that I, I hope will impact some number of people, uh, I have to have like a, an optimistic outlook. <laughs>
0: I appreciate that. Yeah. Kate, last question. What is the next project, the next thing that you're working on as part of this mission?
1: Well, Blake, I'm creating a course called The Art of Teaching that is kind of like everything I think teachers aren't getting in graduate programs or on the job, unless they have, you know, the administration we were talking about before that gives them freedom and choice and other teachers who are practicing this can learn from. Uh, And so I'm creating this course like that could be in person. It can be over the course of a weekend, over the course of a month. um, It can happen online at your own pace. um, And it's all of these kinds of things about, um, kind of like retraining your brain to think about kids as lear- people who learn differently and need different things and then having the tools and resources um, like at your brain's fingertips to, to make that happen in a, in a classroom.
0: Kind of like self-directed learning in the classroom 101. Is that your course title? Did I just guess it? Uh,
1: yes, but I'm not calling it that. <laughs>
0: yes and no thank you
1: um if people are interested in learning more about this the the philosophy that i ascribe to is called universal design for learning um and it very much in encapsulates self-directed learning uh but it, it also takes into account the fact that like people's brains work differently and people learn differently. And so it's not just a matter of like choice or how you acquire information or how you have choice about what you're learning, but also how to figure out the kind of learner you are and the kinds of experiences that you get the most from.
0: Hmm, wonderful. And if people want to find out more about you and your work and your consulting, where can they go?
1: It's katefriedman.co.
0: Kate, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thanks, Blake. This was wonderful.